Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. We are on week two of a series we started last week. That's how, that's how numbers generally work, one and then two. Uh, you know, we're in a, a school, a school theatre, so I thought that educational purposes are important as well. Uh, and we're calling this series, does anyone remember what we're calling the series? Trust in trouble. That's right. You said that with about as much gusto as, as probably the title deserves, right? There are some titles we get excited about, sometimes like trust in trouble, like I don't know. Um, but it's been cool so far to hear, uh, yeah, the, the, the feedback of how this has been landing for people. Uh, and so we're going to get into it today. We've got uh, some ground to cover. But I do just want to reiterate at the very front of this series that uh, as we talk about troubles, as we talk about the fact that sometimes things in life go well and sometimes things in life go hard, uh, our intent is never to open anything up for you and then leave you with your problems, right? Uh, but, but if there are things that today we talk about, you're like, oh man, I, I would love someone to pray through this with me, to process through, just to stand with me in this. I want to reiterate at the very top that, that we are here as a church family to do that with you. These are not just ideas that we look at, but they are things that we invite ourselves, that you are invited to explore in community. Is that all right? That's good. Awesome. Turn to your neighbor one more time and say, are you ready? It's good. And a warm welcome online too. You can turn to uh, if someone's with you. Uh, but, but this series, Trust in Trouble, is, is based around w- what I'm suggesting. I don't have any kind of actual data to prove this, but uh, it's probably the most unpopular promise that Jesus makes in the, in the Gospels. If you've got a, a more unpopular one, you can tell me afterwards. We can have a, a running kind of poll of most unpopular promises. But this one is definitely up there. It's found in John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Okay, I don't, cool. Right, woohoo, yeah, go Jesus, that's exciting, right? Can we do some other promises, right? But we looked at last week, we looked at the, the trouble of suffering. Um, and and this, the trouble of suffering is kind of one of the biggest theological questions. So I don't want to suggest in any way, shape, or form that we solved the, the trouble of suffering last week. But we did look at the, the origin of suffering, right? That suffering is not from God. That suffering is not God punishing us, but suffering is a consequence, a ramification of of sin, and maybe even more importantly than where suffering came from, we looked at what God does about suffering. Yeah, the, the, the reality that it grieves Him, that, that our suffering uh, hurts the heart of God. And so He came in the person of Jesus to resolve suffering, to relate to us in our suffering, and to redeem suffering. Right, that was last week. I want to encourage you if you um, weren't here for it, uh, you can catch that either on SoundCloud or, or on YouTube. Um, you don't have to leave now to do so. You can still be a part of this message. They, they build on top of each other, but uh, it's not quite that kind of dependent. Uh, but, but today I do, I want to build on it really by talking about the trouble with disappointment. But because the reality is, is that even if we know the why behind the suffering, and even if we know what God does about suffering, if we're honest with ourselves, we might still be disappointed that there is suffering. Anyone else? Like, okay, cool. That's cool that we've got a good kind of theology of why, and, and we understand what God's doing about it, and, and, and that is there is hope in that. But at the same time, if I'm really being honest with myself, I still think it kind of sucks. Like, why is there suffering, and, and, and what do I do with the fact that I kind of feel disappointed about the fact that there is suffering? Turn with me if you have your Bibles. We're going to look at a passage of, of Scripture, John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 24 to 28. It says this, but Thomas 
sometimes called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after uh, the, the resurrection. The other disciples told him, we saw the master, which is a big deal, because last Thomas saw him, he was dead. Right? We saw the master. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail holes in his hands, put my finger in the nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room. This time, Thomas was with them. Jesus came through the locked doors, stood among them, and said, peace to you. Then he focused his attention on Thomas. Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Do do not be unbelieving. Believe. Thomas said, my master, my God. One last time, why don't you bow your heads with me and and let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. God, we thank you that that as we look at hard things, you are still a good God. God, I pray as as we're in this space that that your grace would be with us. God, as we wrestle with with maybe some hard questions, maybe some things that bring things up in us that we would rather leave buried, that, that your grace would be there. We would not run from hard things, but that we would run towards you. God, I pray today that, again, it would not be my ideas. God, we want more than just good ideas. It would not be my words, but that you would meet us, that you would touch hearts, that we would leave here more aware of your love for us. But, but more than that, we would leave here more able to trust you. God, that this might not be a neat conclusion, that we might not answer every question we have, but I pray that we would leave here more convinced of who you are and what that means for us. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chances are many of us today in, in, in the room are familiar with the, the passage of Scripture I read, right? In fact, you might even know Thomas by the, the monkey, by the, the title given to him in, in church history. Anyone, anyone know Thomas's kind of unofficial title, the name we give him? You can say it now. It is? That's right. Doubting Thomas. You know, it's interesting. Other, other disciples, they get cool names, right? Right? Like we get Peter the Rock, or John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which, you know, only he refers to himself like that. But go him, right? Like, it's, that, that's good. We get Simon, the zealot. We get Jonathan, the handsome. <laughs> well, you've read about, you've read about, no, yeah? yeah well, just, just go with it, right? And other, other ones that definitely exist as, as well. And then we get poor old doubting Thomas, right? It's not a great name. You think about the names that that you would like. And interestingly, it's not actually a name given to him by Jesus, right? Jonathan the Handsome, given to me by Jesus. Lest, you know, Peter the Rock maybe more scripturally found. Right? It's a a name, a title given to him by by church history. And so I think today as, as we look at, as we grapple with the trouble with disappointment, the trouble with maybe our our own doubts, we we have an opportunity to get to know Thomas a little bit more. See, I want to suggest at the outset, I think that Thomas was actually more than just a doubter. I want to suggest, in fact, I think we can look at Scripture and immediately see that Thomas was at least two other things. Thomas, I would suggest, was bold, right? In fact, in John 14, verses 1 to 5, Jesus says to the disciples, we'll put it up on the screen behind me, don't let your hearts be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to where I am going. And here, Thomas speaks up. Because evidently what's happening here is the disciples must have been doing that thing that we all do when when the teacher or your boss says something and they imply that it's obvious and that everyone knows and no one has any idea, right? You you, you all know the thing that that I'm I'm talking about. The thing that we do is you look at a friend or a colleague and you pull the face, 
right? It's in the, it's in the meeting, it's in the moment, it's in the classroom. And so you just, you look at your friend or your colleague and you just pull the light. It's the eyebrows, right? It's like the question, do you know question? Like, hmm? turn to your neighbor, you all know the face. Turn to your neighbor real quick and just pull them the face. The face, they're like, hmm, you sure? Like, you know, is this a thing for you? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know the place. I presume Thomas starts by turning to one of his friends, one of the disciples, and he pulls the face. The face is returned. Now, Thomas has a decision, right? Well, do we just sit here and, and no one sees anything? And then we leave and like, Jesus is like, cool, so I'll see you at the place. And they're like, yeah, the place, the place that we definitely know where it is. And we will definitely totally 100% meet you there. Or, or, or does someone speak up? And, and so Thomas interrupts and he asks Jesus a question. He says, no, we don't know, Lord. We, we have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Which is a bold thing to do, right? Like if Jesus is like, you know the place that I'm going to, and so come and follow me. He interrupts and he says, no, I, we actually don't know. And so rather than everyone nodding away and then leaving and being like, do you know the place? We don't know the place. How are we going to find the place? We've lost Jesus. Which is hard because he's talking about it anyway. doesn't matter, right? Thomas boldly asks, uh, actually, Jesus, I don't think we do. I don't think we have any idea. Thomas was was bold. And more than that, Thomas was brave, right? In, in John 11, Jesus is about to go back to Judea, and the disciples are nervous because last time he was there, it did not go well. Kind of underselling it. The authorities wanted to kill him. So they're like, well, Jesus, last time you went there, people wanted to kill you. You kind of haven't gotten any less divisive since you were there. Chances are, if we go back, people are going to want to do the same thing again. They're going to want to kill you. And as far as they are concerned, Jesus dying would really kind of put a bit of a, a hole in the plan that they had for him to be the Messiah and overthrow the Roman Empire. They're like, him being alive is quite important to our plans. Right, so like, Jesus, let's not go to Judea. Like, let's go somewhere safer where you are less likely to be killed. But, but Thomas speaks up. He says, no, 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 we should go. In fact, Thomas says to his fellow disciples, let's just go with him and let's die with him. Like, yeah, I'm worried that they'll kill him in Judea too. But you know what? We can't stop Jesus from going, so let's just go with him and die as well. Thomas is, is brave, right? Like, yeah, they might kill Jesus, so let's just go with him and die as well. So, so how does Thomas go from a bold brave disciple to being labeled the doubter. What happens, right? Well, it's quite simple. Jesus dies, which we know. That's kind of the reason that we're here, fairly central part of our faith. But, but maybe we don't quite understand how that lands for Thomas in the middle of, of his story. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Jesus begins his ministry and, and crowds start to follow him. And, and Thomas is one of the crowd. Thomas becomes one of Jesus's inner circle and he sees unexplainable and unexpected things start to happen. And he starts to become more and more convinced that Jesus isn't just a teacher or a prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that he grew up hearing stories about. Maybe he's the one who they have feasts and festivals anticipating the coming of, the Messiah who's going to change it all, the Messiah who's going to bring freedom. See, to Jesus, uh, to, to Thomas, sorry, Jesus wasn't just a friend or a teacher. 
Jesus was the embodiment of his dreams and his hopes. Jesus was the answer to, to ending his family's oppression, to finding freedom for his friends. Finally, Thomas feels like it's all going to work out. He's filled with excitement. He's filled with expectancy. He's filled with hope. And so he comes with Jesus into Jerusalem on Passover of all weeks. Like the symbolism, the importance is, is right there. And he's ready to die for Jesus. He's certain that it's all about to change. And then it all changes, just not at all how Thomas was hoping. Then the one that he put his, his hopes in, the one who, whom carried his dreams, dies. Dies in what feels like a failed attempt at starting some sort of a political revolution. And this is not how Thomas expected it. Jesus dies and his hopes are crushed. His, his dreams are destroyed. His trust is broken. See, we see this through the other end of the story. We, we know how it ends, and so we miss the point because just because it will all be made right doesn't lessen the sting of the wrong. I want to say that again one more time for you because I think some of us in the room today, we're like, oh, I know things are going to be made right one day, and so I guess I shouldn't feel as bad about some of the things that just because one day it will all be made right does not lessen the sting of the wrong. See, Thomas trusted Jesus, and he's, He's left feeling disappointed. And, and, and so when Thomas hears from the other disciples that Jesus wasn't dead, that something has happened, that, that they'd seen him, he replies, unless I see the nail holes in his hands and put my finger in the holes and stick my hand inside, I won't believe it. See, the word there, believe, is the, the Greek pistevo. And, and it's, not, it's not believe how we would think of the word believe. Right? It's, it's not an equivalent. It's not like, I don't know, that sounds a little bit fishy to me. Right? Like, you guys have been really sad, haven't been sleeping well. Like, maybe you just imagined it. Maybe you just, I don't know, this just seems like the, I just, the facts don't add up to me. That's not what he's saying. It's the, the better word to capture his meaning would be trust. He's not saying, oh, I don't know, that, that doesn't add up to me. He's saying, I can't get my hopes up again. I can't bring myself to, to trust again. Thomas says, I won't, I can't. This is not a decision I cannot trust again. See, Thomas's doubt is not like the shmami, oh, I'll make up my own mind about that. Like, I'll see, I'll stick my hands and, and, and we'll see, right? I'll make up, I'll, I'll see how the, the holes feel. And if it feels real to me, then I'm sure it's real. It's not what he's saying here. Thomas's doubt is the result of his experience not fitting into his worldview. It's what happens when you're told that if you follow Jesus, you'll be too blessed to be stressed. Or, or if you just have faith, it'll all resolve like an episode of your favorite TV show. Conflict, resolution, conclusion. Doubt is the wrestling part of prayers gone unanswered. It's the part sad, part angry, part confused question, God, why? It's the moments when we wonder, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Because if I look around, I seem to see a whole bunch of loose ends. Like what is going on? We recognize Thomas's doubts because if we're honest with ourselves, we have them. So what do we do? What do we do when we feel disappointed? What, what, what do we do when we've experienced more of the already and less of the not yet? What do we do when we're more acquainted with the pain than we are with the promise? What do we do when the kingdom of heaven feels a whole lot more like it's going than it is coming? To put it as bluntly as I can, we could say it this way. What do you do when you feel disappointed by God?
Left to our own devices, most of us just cope. Maybe we cry at the tomb like Mary. Maybe we go back to doing what we know, what is familiar like Peter, but, but all of us in some way, shape, or form, we wall ourselves off like Thomas. We lock ourselves in a room, and, and we don't really ask anymore. We, we don't really hope anymore. We pray less and less. We don't dare hope because hope hurts. We do all we can to avoid being disappointed again. We limit our lives. We contain our expectations. We don't let ourselves get our hopes up, but Jesus doesn't leave us there. Jesus shows up. He greets Mary at the tomb. He cooks breakfast for Peter on the side of the lake. He meets Thomas in the locked room, walking through the walls. Jesus joins us in our doubt, in our suffering, and he invites us to bring it to him, to not hide our disappointment. See, when when we keep our doubt and our disappointment bottled up, in doing so, our doubt and our disappointment comes to define us. We go from being Thomas who experienced doubt to becoming doubting Thomas. The thing that is our, our greatest shame, our greatest weight, often the source of our greatest hurt, also comes to become an identifying factor of who we are. I don't say that to to kind of degrade the feelings that we have, but to acknowledge that we stay camped in a place that is not healthy. See, the reality is, is that in this life, you will have troubles, and that includes disappointment, but how do we avoid our disappointments becoming our identity? Jesus asks us to do something hard. He says to Thomas, take your fingers and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Right? Thomas says, I will never pestava. I will never trust. I cannot trust. I cannot get my hopes up. I'm protecting myself and protecting my heart. And Jesus says, do not apistos, which means untrusting. Do not untrust. Apistos, pistos, trust. Do not be untrusting. Stop untrusting and trust again. Jesus invites him back. He says, do not distrust. Trust. Which is a really easy thing to say, right? Like, yeah, sure, I'll just flick that trust button that I have inside my heart. So there we go, Jesus, it's all sorted out now. Thank you for that. And so how do we do that? Like how if we feel disappointed, how if we're being honest with ourselves, there is a degree, an element of us that we hold back from Jesus saying, God, I want to trust you with some things, but some things, there just needs to be some space because if I trust you with this, I'm afraid I might get hurt. How do we respond to Jesus's invitation? Do not distrust trust, especially when it hasn't gone how we hoped, especially when we feel disappointed. How do we trust the God that if we're honest, maybe we feel disappointed with? I want to give you a theological concept, and and then I want to give you a story. The Bible tells us that God collects two things. The first thing the Bible tells us that God collects is that God collects our prayers, Revelations chapter 5 verse 8 says this, Then the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one with a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I see the blank looks, right? Let me explain. We'll unpack the apocalyptic symbolism here. We're like, yeah, that's, I can totally see how God collects my prayers there. What it's saying here, what John is saying from the island of Patmos in Revelation, what he's saying is that every prayer you've ever whispered, From the simplest throwaway request to the most heartfelt cry, God has collected it. 
He's collected it. Tyler Staden says in his book, uh, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, that he collects it like a grandmother who scrapbooks a toddler's finger paints and scribbles. That God has, has treasured up every prayer we've ever uttered, even the ones that we've forgotten, and he is still weaving their fulfillment, bending history in the direction of a great yes. That God collects our prayers, that none of our prayers are wasted. But God, John's revelation doesn't end with God just as a scrapbooking grandmother. God is, is shown to be a powerful redeemer. Three chapters later, those heavenly golden prayer bowls reappear in, in Revelation 8, 3 to 5. It says, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayer of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What that's saying there is, is we see a promise of God pouring out every prayer that's been prayed on creation. That, that all of the hopes, that all of the dreams, that, that all of the God, would you, God, could you, God, why won't you, is poured out in a resounding yes. Revelation paints a picture of God collecting our prayers and that the renewal of the world, heaven and earth being restored as one, begins with God pouring out our prayers. That we live in the already but not yet. That we live in between the defeat of sin and, and the world being made right and new. But that we know that one day there will be a time of no more tears that one day the prayers that we pray will be answered. And that doesn't mean that we are satisfied with the way in which they are answered. Right, when we say to someone who has lost someone that they love, oh, but one day you'll get to see them again. That's like, oh, that's cool. But right now I miss them. But at the same time, it's holding intention. These prayers are not ignored. These prayers do not fall on, on deaf ears. God collects them. God sees them. See, trust is about relationships. And I think it's so important that there is something in us that goes, no, I know that God hears me. I know that God sees me. I'm not being ignored. My prayers are not being wasted. But God collects more than just the words wedged between dear God and amen. The other thing that God collects, the Bible tells us, is our tears. See, Psalm 56 verse 8 says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Prayer is, is, is asking. It's looking from the vantage point of heaven and pointing God into the mess, saying, God, we need to do something about this. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here is something that is broken. Make it right. But prayer is also weeping. Prayer is not just the eloquent declarations of, of what God should do. It is in the middle of the mess, so thick that we cannot see the prayer that goes beyond words and just comes out as a sob of, God, it is broken. And it hurts. Because the psalmist also tells us in Psalm 126 verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. See, that the psalmist shows us that God's not just collecting our tears for the sake of it. He's collecting them because they are precious to him. That you're hurt, you're suffering, your disappointments, it matters to God. And he's collecting them just like our prayers for a purpose, to redeem them. But as we talked about last week, we are promised that a day is coming when the Father himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that, that suffering will be resolved, that Jesus defeated sin and evil on the cross. But until then, we live on an in-between promise. I will not let a single one of your tears be wasted. That Jesus is with us in our suffering. How do we trust in disappointment? One final story and, and then an application. 
Acts 12 tells an incredible story of Peter's supernatural deliverance from prison. He gets thrown into jail for his faith in Jesus, and he has a public execution date set for the next day. And and so the church gathers, and they they hold an all-night prayer meeting, interceding that God would do something. And in the wee hours of the morning, Peter shows up at the very prayer meeting where they are praying for his freedom. He walks in the doors because, as it turns out, God was listening and doing the miraculous. He opened a locked cell in the middle of the night and guided Peter from shackles to freedom so that he could rejoin the church family that had been asking on his behalf. Right, Acts 12, that's the takeaway, and it's incredible. Wow, that's amazing. But there's something else going on. In fact, there's something else going on that that amazes me even more than a miraculous rescue. Acts 12 verses 1 to 3 says this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that that was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This is how Peter comes to be in jail. Already, Herod has has taken James and and killed him. And, And so this is the situation, and here's what we might gloss over. God miraculously freed Peter, and James was unjustly executed. Which we gloss over because it makes us uncomfortable. We're like, oh, I don't like that. Why? Like, God... Why? God, why did you respond miraculously to prayer for Peter, but silently to prayer for James? Like, surely God loved them both. They were part of the part of the inner circle, both faithful disciples, influential apostles. And surely the church prayed for both. If they gathered for an all-night prayer meeting for, for Peter, it's safe to assume that they responded in the same way for James, that Peter was probably even present at the prayer meeting praying for James. Both were arrested and imprisoned by the same tyrant for the same unjust cause. Perhaps they even occupied the same jail cell. So why, God? Why let James die if you have the power to teleport Peter to safety? And I don't know. That's the only honest answer. Like we can get into some sort of, oh, maybe they did this and turn it into some formulaic thing where we manipulate God into doing what we want, but we do ourselves and God a disservice if we do that. I think we need to be okay with the response. I don't know. A lot of suffering is unexplainable. At a lot of suffering, we simply have to say, I don't know why this happens. But what I do know is that when I read Acts, I see a seasoned, resilient faith. I I see a praying people who celebrate with God in the miracles and who bear with God through the mystery. And here's what I want to highlight. Lost in the background of the, the action sequences and the miraculous montages of Acts is this, a community that gathered to pray even after they had tried it once before and been disappointed. Even when they had prayed for James to be freed and they had lost him, they kept on praying in the faith of unanswered prayer. They persisted in prayer. And when I see that, I ask myself, where does this type of persistence come from? And the only answer that I can find is only from the belief that God is bottling your tears and saving them right next to your prayers. That both are key ingredients in the redemption, that, that he loves you too much to let either go to waste prayers or tears, and that God meets us in our suffering. That as much as they were grieved by James being lost, it broke God. That God was not up there being like, oh, I'm just a little bit too busy to get to that today, but that it hurt him, it broke him. We do not know why, but we know that he joins us 
in the suffering. Which brings me back to Thomas. Jesus meets Thomas in Thomas's disappointment. Right, John 20, 27 to 28, we already read it. He says, put your finger in, in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responds to him, my God and my Lord. See, Jesus revealed himself in the way that Thomas needed to know him. He met Thomas in the middle of, of, of Thomas's suffering, and he simply says to him, me too. Thomas, you're not alone in this. Thomas, I'm here with you. Thomas, I will suffer with you. I'll end this. I'll redeem this. And in response, the, the words that tumble from Thomas are, my Lord and my God. Scholars argue that this is the highest praise given to Jesus anywhere in the four Gospels. What this means is that no one has ever thought more of God than Thomas did when God showed up in the place of his disillusionment, pain, disappointment, and doubt. How do we trust? How do we trust when maybe we even feel disappointed by, by God? I think we have to start like Thomas to see Jesus in his suffering, to, to run our hands over his room, wounds, because when we look at Jesus' suffering, it's, we don't look to kind of make ourselves feel bad. Like, I really should trust him, because look, he's done a lot. It would be pretty stinking me if he died for me and I didn't trust him. Come on, Jono, trust. No, when we look at his suffering, it reveals his character. See, I, I don't and never could understand everything about God, but I can trust the God who is revealed in Jesus. I can trust the God who has never looked down on suffering from a lofty throne, but has always looked it into the eyes of suffering on level ground, choosing to come to me, to meet me, to relate to me in my suffering. I can trust the God who refuses to offer platitudes from a safe distance, the God who descends into the mess with me, the character of the God revealed in Jesus I can trust. Trust even in disappointment. Trust even in disappointment is the invitation trusting in the character of God, not trusting that it makes sense, not trusting that it adds up, not trusting that we can understand it, that the, the balance sheet comes to a, a net positive for us, and we're like, oh God, I see what you were doing there in some sort of divine way of trusting the character. God, I see who you are in my suffering. I see who you are relating to me in my, my suffering. What do we do when we feel disappointed by God? We embrace Jesus' invitation to trust. And we find our way to trust as we embrace Jesus' character. As I get the band to join me, that leaves us with a big question, doesn't it? Like, how do I do that? Those are all great ideas from a theological standpoint of, oh yeah, if we see the character of Jesus, something in us is, is transformed and we can trust Jesus and and then suffering's fine, right? It's not true. It's not the way it works. But one of the ways that church has embraced trust throughout church history is through song, through worship. See, trust is all about reliability. 
And, and whenever we feel like trust with a person has been broken, we call into question their character. We call into question their, their reliability, right? That's a natural response when we feel that trust has been broken. But when we sing and worship, we verbalize who God is. We, we remind ourselves of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. We call ourselves to consider that God may be bigger than my experience of him in this season, that doesn't degrade or diminish our experience of him in this season. It just reminds us that maybe this is not the totality of who God is. That sometimes we can think of, of worship as emotional or, or feelings-based, right? That, that worship, worshiping though in, in hardship and suffering, that's not emotional or feelings-based. That's an act of the will. Worshiping when you don't feel like it. Disappointment and doubt are our worldview not matching up with our experiences. But when we sing in worship, we choose to remind ourselves that our experiences, though valid and real, are not the full extent of all experiences. Singing is one of the most repeated instructions to God's people throughout Scripture. For a people who are constantly suffering, always in the already but not yet, always walking into promise but not quite there yet. That the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms in which we find prayers of anger, more prayers of anger, by the way, than we do hope. But right next to declarations of hope, the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, is a collection of songs. Right, Paul's pastoral encouragement to the churches was to sing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And it wasn't just good theology to Paul. Right, this was something that he, he lived out, chained in prison with Silas in Acts 16. What does he do? In the middle of a hard situation, they begin to sing. Jesus sung. Matthew 26 tells us that right before Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, where he would be arrested and taken to the cross, that he sang a hymn. Right? Jesus seems to, to tell his disciples that he's going to be killed. It is confusing, and it's hard, and it's messy. And then he says, all right, let's finish with a song, shall we? Like it's awkward. It's a weird thing. He's like, someone's going to betray me, and tonight I'm going to my death. Let's sing a hymn. And yet they sing. But, but more than that, a few hours later, dying on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see this in Matthew 27 and uh, verse 46 and Mark 15, 34. That's not just a thing that he's saying off the cuff. Those are lyrics. Lyrics to a song that we find in Psalm 22, verse 1. We'll put it on the screen behind me. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And it concludes, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Again, Luke tells us that Jesus' very last words are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. Psalm 31, verses 1 to 5 says this, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Keep me from the trap that is set before me for you are my refuge into your hands. I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. I wanna suggest that on the cross, Jesus is singing. 
in his suffering, Jesus turns to the prayers and the songs of his day to embolden him, to encourage him, to meet him in his suffering. And I simply want to ask if Jesus needed the prayers and the songs of his day to help strengthen him through suffering, then maybe we do too. Maybe we have an asset, a resource to help us in times of trouble. In this life, there will be trouble. We can't explain fully why. We can't resolve the the problem of pain, but we know a God who meets us in it. And as we embrace the church tradition of sung worship, we remind ourselves of the God who chooses to meet us in our suffering, who says every suffering is not just yours, but it is mine too. I join you in it. See, worship calls us in suffering and in strength on the mountain and in the valley to let our mouths tell the truth of who God is until our eyes see it. Singing calls us to move our bodies in praise when we want nothing more than to wall up and to wall in, and I'm done. Last week I shared about my nephew, Damien, dying. And and after, there were weeks where I would just stand in church and I just felt unable to lift my voice. Not, Not sure if I'd ever be able to sing to God again. And it wasn't just that I was disappointed or or mad or grieving, although I was all of those things. I just physically felt in that moment like I couldn't even make my mouth form the words. That if I opened my mouth, all that wanted to come out was just like a groan. And if I'm honest, that felt a little bit awkward for church. But if you need to groan, you can groan. And, And so I simply stood there stood there in worship surrounded by a community who was speaking out what what deep down I knew to be true. Deep down, gelled with my experience of God. I knew God to be good. I knew God to be loving. And yet in that moment, I was mad and I was disappointed. And so I stood in a community of people who sung out the truth of who God was and slowly something in me healed. I'm not saying if you sing, it will all magically get better. But but what I am saying is that the sung prayers of God's people encourage and they edify. They remind us of God's character and that sometimes the song that you sing isn't even for you, but there's someone a few rows back who needs to hear you sing it out. In this life, we will have troubles. We know one day it will be made right, but how do we live in the here and now? How do we deal with the trouble of disappointment? Maybe one of the ways is is through song. To hear truth declared like, I believe you're the God of miracles. And even if it doesn't happen, God, I know you're good and you're working it out. Or or I'm believing in what you said. I'll trust when it doesn't make sense. Or, Or I trust in God, my Savior, the one who will never fail. He will never fail. Even as we feel like, God, I, this isn't failure. We hear truth declared. See, what do you do when you feel disappointed by God? You take it to God. You you persist. You tell Him how you feel. God, I feel like I cannot trust because God meets us in there. Because of the cross, there is no suffering that Jesus does not join us in. And Jesus shows us and shows Thomas this. And and Thomas' response to Jesus and his suffering is, my Lord and my God, you're asking me sounds a whole lot like worship because our worship starts 
with the realization that God collects our prayers and our tears, that nothing is wasted, not even our disappointment. And we can be mad. We can be mad at it all. We can be mad at God. We can be disappointed in God. And He's still there for us. He's still there with us in the sorrow and in the suffering, not letting a single tear or prayer be wasted, working together a great one day and resounding amen. But the invitation today is, is to trust. And, and, and maybe like for me, song can play a role for you. When you can't find the words to remind you of the character of God who suffers with you, who suffered for you, who ends all suffering. Maybe as you stand to your feet. In a moment, the band's gonna lead us in song and we're gonna embrace the opportunity to declare truth. Whether it feels true or not, the invitation is there to remind ourselves of the God who suffers with you, who suffered for you, and who ends all suffering. And I would invite you to sing. Sing is, is a reminder sing as a declaration of faith. Or maybe today you can relate to me in a moment in my life where you simply need to stand under the sung word of God to let the faith that is in the room carry you in your hurt, carry you in your disappointment. It doesn't diminish it. We're not trying to cover it up, but we're trying to remind you that my experience is not the sum of all experiences. Could it be possible that this hurts and yet God is still good? God still loves you. God is still at work. Just a moment, we're gonna sing. Before we do, his heads are bowed, his eyes are closed. I'd love to give an invitation if you're here today and you don't know Jesus is this one who comes to suffer with you to suffer for you and to end all suffering. To you, maybe he's an idea. The only problem with that is, is that ideas don't help anyone. Jesus is more than an idea. He's a person. He's God revealed in a person. Come not just to, to end suffering, but to join us in it. We don't pray a prayer simply to go to heaven one day. We pray a prayer to invite Jesus into our here and now. Maybe we could put it this way. We don't pray a prayer to go to heaven one day. We pray a prayer to ask Jesus to join us in what feels like hell here and now. In our suffering, in our hardship. It might not change our circumstance, but at the same time, it can change everything. It's heads about as eyes are closed. If you're here today and Maybe you've never prayed this prayer or, or maybe if you're honest with yourself, you would say, Jono, I'm, I'm suffering on my own. I wanna invite Jesus into my life in a fresh and a new way. I need to know him as more than just an idea. I need to know him as my Lord and my God. Like Thomas, when he sees Jesus in his suffering, I wanna respond like that, my Lord and my God. To choose to trust in the faith that we have. He's about his eyes are closed. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand in a moment simply so that I know who I'm praying this prayer with and, and you have a moment you can look back on and those weren't just words, I, I meant something in that. Something in me changed. That's you here today and you wanna pray this prayer with me. Would you raise your hand in three, two, 
one. Vince, you would you raise your hand nice and high? Awesome. Give it a moment longer if that's you. Raise your hand and let me know. Online, if that's you, you can pray this prayer with us too. Church, would you repeat this after me? Jesus, today I choose to trust you even when it's hard. Thank you that you came for me, that you love me, that you freed me. God, help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. 